Open uh, your Bible with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. I think I already said that, but hopefully you are close to being there. Um, What I hope to accomplish in our text today is really just a simple reflection on the Christian life from the verses that we're going to look at. You know, my goal is to just encourage you with who Jesus is, encourage you with the privilege that we have in knowing him. Sometimes when I get up here, I I have a goal to, like, give you some practical application to go and live out. Today, I just want to, I hope, allow your soul to just drink deeply from the refreshing waters of God's Word. So I want to break this down into two concepts. The reality of the Christian life, and then the result of that reality— the reality of what it means to be a Christian and the result that accompanies that reality. So let's read our text. I'm actually going to go back one verse to one that we touched on last week. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. It says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The first thing that I want you to see and and hopefully understand a little bit more deeply today is the reality of the Christian life. We see a few facets of it here first in verse 5 and then again, I think, in verses 9 through 10. Verse 5 tells us that we are children of light. Put another way, in other places in Scripture, we're children of God. Romans 8.16 says specifically, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And Paul here in verse 5, he could have stated this idea in so many different ways. He could have said something like, we belong to light, not darkness. But instead, he intentionally chooses this word children. We are children of of light. Let's not speed through this point and miss the wonder of it. God calls us his children. I'll never forget the first moment that I held each one of my kids. Never. It's burned onto my memory indelibly. It was a powerful and precious moment. My heart was just overwhelmed with love. It was this strange experience because I thought all the love that I had to give was already given to my wife. I was afraid I'd have to divide it when I had a child, and suddenly there was a whole nother 100% portion to give, and that happened again with each one of them when they were born. And it's no accident that the Bible calls us children of God. That is so much more than a statement of fact That language is meant to invoke in our hearts deep feelings of affection, security, joy, peace. God is our Father, 
and he delights over us as his children. We belong to the Father of lights as his precious adopted daughters and sons. He loves us. He cares for us like a good father loves and cares for his children. This is the reality of who we are, children of light. Then we skip down to verses 9 and 10, and we see that our reality as children of God is not to receive wrath from God for sin. We escape that reality because we are his children. Instead, we've been given salvation through Jesus Christ who died for us. We've been saved from God's wrath and judgment towards sin because in love, Christ Jesus spilled his blood to redeem us that we might be called children of God. And we are loved by God by virtue of this adoption which has come through Christ's redeeming blood, causing us to be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now look, I realize this is super elementary. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, I learned that before I became a Christian, Grady. This is Christianity 101, or maybe it's like Christianity for first graders. But it never gets old. And in so many ways, we never outgrow the elementary truths that we are purchased by the blood of Christ, that we are God's beloved children of light. These things are the bedrock of our faith. It is the reality of who we are as Christians. And although the concepts that I'm talking about are elementary in nature, they are also fundamental to what we proclaim and we believe and we profess because everything else in the Christian life builds off of this. Paul, in these verses, like he does in so many of his writings, he lays out expectations. He lays out results or responses that are required. But all of that is always predicated upon a reality about who he is addressing. That we are children of light, children of God, who've received salvation through Jesus Christ, who died for us. And this is so foundational that if we get this wrong, everything else that we build or we do that we might call Christian is going to be so dysfunctional. It doesn't even deserve that name. We have to get this right or we get Christianity wrong. Which is why Paul always grounds his exhortations, his teachings, his commands, the letters that he writes in the reality of who we are in Christ Jesus. Because reality precedes response. Identity must come before behavior. Our nature is the foundation of our conduct. And if we try to produce a response where there isn't a change in reality, things get really weird. If you've ever belonged to a church where people are like that, you know from experience what I'm talking about. It can get ugly and distorted. Let me try and illustrate it with maybe a touch of humor, if I can try. A few weeks ago, I told you about a, a man who thinks that he's a dog, a grown man. He calls himself Boomer. You can look up his website if you really want to. 
And because he thinks he's a dog, he does dog-like things. He barks. He eats dog food. He sleeps in a cage. Our culture would probably call him brave for living true to his self-identity. But we know that he is lost and desperately in need of help because he's living contrary to reality. And Scripture calls people like that a fool. No matter how hard this man tries to be a dog, he will never be a dog because God made him a man. His DNA is human. He was born to people parents, not canine parents. And as much as he wants to be a dog, his identity is human. As much as he pretends to be a puppy, the reality is he is a person. And the same thing is true of humanity on a spiritual plane. The only way that we can actually be a Christian is to be transformed in our nature. That's a work of God. You can do Christian-like things without the reality of God having changed your heart. And you can call yourself a Christian, and you might even look a lot like a Christian, but that doesn't mean that you actually are one. Just like Boomer is not actually a dog. Not until God gives you salvation through Jesus Christ are you a Christian. Not until God makes you a child of light, changed by God from a creature of darkness into a creature of day, moved by God from being under his wrath for your sin to being his child. Whom he loves. Jesus said, in order to belong to the kingdom of God, you have to be spiritually born again as a child of God. And if you try to be a Christian without that fundamental change in reality, that fundamental change of nature, you are doomed to fall short. You're doomed to look like a foolish man who thinks he's a dog when he obviously isn't. You're doomed to do religious things without a relationship with God. Sadly, the church may even think that you are brave for being true to your self-identity and add to the deception, tragically. But the point is, you can't actually be a Christian unless you belong to Jesus Christ with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, until you surrender everything to him and call him your Lord, and you step into the new reality of his grace, godliness through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we turn and consider what the Christian life actually looks like in these verses. And hear me please, clearly, because if you think that you can do what's going to come next without the reality change, without the transformation, without the new nature, you've not paid attention to anything I just spent 15 minutes trying to explain to you. In other words, be honest with yourself. If you are not a Christian because God has done a work in your heart, then just stop paying attention because I don't want to add to the deception that you might be like Boomer the dog. But for those of us who are children of light, reality produces change. Reality produces a kind of behavior. 
And I want you to keep these things in mind because you can't experience the results of the Christian life or live out the response of the Christian life if you're not first entered into the reality of the Christian life. That is, you cannot live the Christian life until you first become a child of God through the salvation of Jesus Christ who died for you. It just doesn't work like that. Now, the results of this new identity, this new reality to which we belong to are many, even just in this short text. And this is just a couple of verses. We see in verse 6 that we are empowered to keep awake while others fall asleep. This is a figurative language. He's not talking about narcolepsy here. It's a bit poetic even because the word sleep here has this alternate meaning in Greek, which is apathy, apathetic. Paul's playing with the themes of light and dark to explain the difference between children of God, children of light, and those who are under the wrath of God. And Paul's saying that while the world slips into apathy and sin, the children of light, the children of God, remain focused, committed, determined to draw ever closer to God who is light. And because we are children of light, we don't grow apathetic. Our hearts do not turn cold. They cannot turn cold because we belong to a new reality. Because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Therefore, we do not abandon Him. And how do you know that you've been given this new nature, that you are a child of light? Examine your heart and your soul for a second. Do you hate spiritual apathy? Does it despise you? Do you long for nearness to Jesus? Now, I want to be honest and say you may enter into seasons of sleepiness, but even as you are in that season and you're tempted to snooze, you hate it. You don't want to be there. You are not okay with it. You long for more. You long to be fully awake and close to Jesus, ready and alert to receive him. Jesus himself commanded his followers to be alert and ready. He said, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. If you have entered into this new reality, I expect that at the very least you will hate spiritual apathy when it comes upon you. We find also that the result of this new identity is a life of sobriety as seen in verses 7 and 8. Now Paul's not literally saying in these verses that we shouldn't get drunk. That is an application we could draw from this text and we can go to other places in the Bible that specifically say, don't do that. But right here, he continues to speak in metaphorical terms. And what he means is that those who belong to the light, who are children of God, need to be free of the impairment that comes with sin. Sin is akin to drunkenness. It impairs our relationship with God. It lowers our inhibitions against what God hates. Sin lures us into excess, unfettered passions, confusion, spiritual stupidity, and even outright rebellion if we continue down that road. 
The drunkenness of sin leads to self-destruction, and it has no place in the kingdom of God, where God is all reality. And in contrast, spiritual sobriety, that's a well-ordered life. It's self-controlled, it's deliberate in its pursuit of Jesus. It is a heart and a mind seeking to walk unswervingly down the path in pursuit of Christ. Paul then gives further illumination to this spiritual sobriety by telling us these are the same people, the, the spiritually sober ones are the same people clothed with the breastplate of faith and love, wearing the helmet of the hope of salvation. And I think this is a fitting illustration here. It's a little archaic for us because we don't live in first century Rome, but in first century Rome, there was no police department. Instead, the Roman army enforced the law. And so in any city, people would see Roman soldiers. They would know the clothing that they would be equipped with. And since Rome was almost always at war with someone, a soldier in the Roman army had to be ready for battle at any given moment. Now, can you imagine a soldier drunk and unprepared when the alarm is sound that the enemy is near? He tries to grab his stuff and run out to the battlefield and he's falling over. He can't lift his sword up. How long is he going to last in that drunken stupor on a field with the enemy close at hand? And in the same way, sin makes us ill-prepared to stand for Jesus Christ in this spiritual war for our souls. And the gear with which we've been equipped to fight this war is the faith the love, the hope of salvation, three virtues, which if you can remember way back to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has already commended his friends in Thessalonica for exemplifying. Do you remember that from chapter 1? These are virtues which sustain a Christian in this new reality as a child of God. Why? Why? Why them? Well, because they lift the eyes of the Christian from this world up to see the face of Jesus. And as our eyes are fixed on the object of our redemption, then we are sustained in everything. Our faith is in Him who we look at. Our love is for Him upon whom we look. Our hope is found in Him, the one we fixed our eyes upon. And as we look to Him, we are reminded of His grace, His love for us, His faithfulness, and we find endurance. And there's an important distinction here for us to make, okay? Which is the fact that it is God Himself who has forged for us this armor. God is not expecting you to forge this. He's expecting you to equip yourself with it. But He is the one who has forged it for you. See, again, it's essential for us to remember that this faith and love and hope about which Paul speaks here, it is not something that we do or we achieve on our own. These are gifts which God has given to us. They are the clothing that belong to us who are children of light. They are the reality that comes to us through Jesus Christ, making it possible for us to stand ready to remain awake, to be prepared to do works of righteousness. And they help us because they focus our attention back on Jesus. 
I mean, the person who attempts to will themselves into greater faith, instead of crying out, I believe, help my unbelief. The person who tries to will it is in big trouble. The person who tries to exercise love without receiving from Christ the love that he has is always going to find themselves deficient. And the person who tries to feel hope without knowing the power of Jesus Christ is grasping at straws. They will always be frantic to do more instead of rest in what God has done for them. And they will surely fail and fall because they are hoping in themselves, their greater effort, their better achievement, instead of hoping in Christ who said, it is finished. But if you think about these three things, faith, love, and hope, in the context of this passage, remember back a couple of weeks, what is Paul talking about here? What has... What have we been talking about since Jim preached several weeks ago? All of these things, faith, hope, love, they're rooted in the reality of who we are because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Again, remember the context of the passage, all the way back to chapter 4. Paul has been speaking about the end times, the return of Jesus Christ, which is imminent. It could be any moment. And he's been reminding his friends in Thessalonica that the return of Jesus is sure to happen. Christ is coming in order to reward all who belong to him. And so Paul calls his friends then to gird themselves in that truth, to stand firm in that reality, to be sober-minded in Christ Jesus, to look to his coming in order to be strengthened, to have endurance, to hope again. Again, it's our faith in Jesus that saves us. It is his love that empowers us. It is the hope of his return that gives us the endurance we so desperately need. For the Christian, it is always and in every way about Jesus. And not you, not me. And as long as we look to him and we're safe, or as long as we look to him, we are safe. And we will live. Think of it kind of like this, uh, like a person lost at sea, treading water, awaiting rescue. As long as they scan the horizon and it's empty of ships, their strength will always be waning. They are always at risk of losing, giving up hope, sinking below the waves. Death is the only friend they have if the horizon is empty. But if instead they look to the horizon and they they see a ship, they see their rescuer, they may find at that moment then a reserve of strength they didn't even know they had. Only a little bit longer. Their hope is visible. Their commitment to keep treading water will be renewed, knowing that the day of their salvation is, is near. And in the same way, Paul wants to remind his friends that their sober, God-glorifying behavior is worth it because Christ is coming. His salvation, it's, it's just there, just on the horizon, but coming. Their faith is in his power, their trust in his love, their hope in his salvation, and none of it is in vain. These things are the deposit which he has given to them so that they might belong to him as children of the light that they might renew their strength and remain ready. That they might see the result of this reality that they belong to God who is 
near. Scripture says the Lord is at hand. Be anxious about nothing. And this result only further strengthened when we get to verses 9 through 10 where Paul reminds his friends that they've escaped the wrath of God because of the death of Christ. And they've been saved from God's wrath so that they might live with Him. And here's another result of this reality that we belong to God as children of light. We live with God. Now, in this life. And then forever, when we fall asleep in death. And what a beautiful concept that Christ Christ gave His life so that we might have life. God everlasting partook of death so that we might partake of everlasting life. And this is the reward which we look forward to, the result of God's salvation, that we will live with Jesus in fullness, even as we live with Him now as if in a dream. And So let me encourage you like verse 11 commands us to do. For some reason, I struggled all week with this message. My mind was, was cloudy. The, the, the form and the order wouldn't come. My thoughts were too sporadic. My prayers were jumbled. And I was anxious even getting up here this morning because I feel like what I've offered is not what I hoped that it would be. But the command in verse 11 is, is pretty simple, and maybe I'm putting too much emphasis on Grady and not enough on Jesus and His Word. And I pray I've achieved what verse 11 commands, that you might be encouraged as you look to Jesus, that, that I have encouraged you with these things, that your heart might be strengthened as you reflect on the fact that you are a child of God. If indeed your hope is in Jesus Christ, He has called you His beloved. God feels no wrath towards you for your sin. Because Jesus Christ in his death has rescued you from its consequences. That you might be built up by the truth that there is hope in God through faith in Christ. That you might comprehend more fully how high and deep and wide and strong the love of the Father is towards you because you are a child of God. And I pray that both the Scripture here and the Spirit within you just reinforce that hope in Christ, that joy in Him, so that you might look to Him and stand ready to meet Him, fully awake on the day that He comes. Let me pray. God, would you please do this work? We don't want to grow cold in our love for you. We don't want to embrace apathy. We don't want to engage in the sin that takes place in darkness. We want to be your beloved children of light. And so give us the faith that we so desperately need. Reveal to us the love that you have for us. Encourage us with the hope of Christ's coming. And we thank you for all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.